Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the October 2001 disappearance of 16-year-old Margaret Ann Quatley from Arlington, Texas. This is part one of a two-part episode on the teen's case. Now, family and some friends called Margaret by her middle name, Anne, but others knew her as Margaret. So you're going to hear both names used interchangeably throughout these two episodes. I'm going to call her Margaret Ann just to cover all bases. Now, Margaret Ann was the daughter of Nanette and Gabriel Coatley. Gabriel wasn't her biological dad, but he had adopted her and her older brother, Michael. Nanette was a single Filipino mother who'd been living in California when she met Gabriel. Gabriel had been born in Mexico City, but came to the United States with his parents when he was 16. They moved to McDade, Texas, just east of Austin, where he finished high school, and he later attended and graduated from the University of Texas at Austin, and soon moved to Los Angeles. There, he landed a job working in the Federal Reserve Bank. Now, that's where he meets Nanette, and the two began seeing each other in 1990. Gabriel was a confident man. He competed competitively in powerlifting, and he had aspirations of being a successful career man. So he becomes a U.S. citizen, figuring he'd go further as a citizen than just a green card holder. Now, Margaret Ann would have been just six when Gabriel came into her family's life. Apparently, Gabriel tried to embrace this fatherly role. He wanted to buy a house for the family, but homes in L.A. were expensive. So he inquired about job opportunities in Texas, and that's how the family wound up living in Arlington, with Gabriel scoring a job at Texas Commerce Bank, which later became known as Chase Bank. Now, though together for years, Gabriel and Nanette wouldn't officially get married until March 1st, 1999, when they went before a justice of the peace in Arlington. On the surface, the family appeared happy. By the fall of 2001, Margaret Ann was 16 and a senior at Sam Houston High School in Arlington. She played on the tennis team and excelled in academics. She was living alone with her parents in a nice four-bedroom house in southeast Arlington after her older brother, Michael, had left home at 17 and joined the military. But things weren't as rosy as they appeared. Loanne Quach went to high school and played on the tennis team with Margaret Ann, whom she knew by her first name, Margaret. She said the two were friends, but that she didn't see Margaret Ann much outside of school or tennis. She says Margaret Ann kept more to herself. And Loanne doesn't think that's because Margaret Ann was an introvert, but rather because the teen had such strict parents. Usually after a tennis game, you know, hey, let's, let's all go out to eat somewhere. And she would, you know, I can't, I have to be home. My parents are taking me home. I mean, they pretty much went to almost every game that we, that we went, you know, out for that's not on campus. Loanne says at first the kids thought it was nice that Margaret Ann's parents were so involved, going to every game, and many of the other parents had to work. The more we got to know her the more we realized it wasn't neat. Loanne said it quickly became apparent, however, that Margaret Ann's parents were very controlling. She and friends would also soon begin to notice marks and bruises on Margaret Ann. When Loanne inquired where she got them, she says Margaret Ann would confide in her that it was at home. So if you don't mind sharing, what, what was she telling you about what was going on at home? Um, that she was being abused by both parents 
and that's been going on for a couple of years, for a while. And she was speaking of physical abuse only, or did she ever say anything else? She was speaking about physically, emotionally, sexually. The sexual abuse, Loanne says she was told by Margaret Ann, was at the hands of Gabriel Kowatli, Margaret Ann's adoptive father. She says Margaret Ann told her that she told her mom about the abuse, but it hadn't stopped. Heather Hall, another of Margaret Ann's friends who played on the tennis team, said Margaret Ann had also confided in her that she was being abused at home. She never wanted to change in front of anyone in the locker room. And I would ask her, like, like, why do you wait for everybody to leave? And she's like, well, I don't want anybody to see. And she would have bruises where they would hit her, um, but they would try to make it in places where it wouldn't be seen. Um, I remember one time she let me feel her head, and she had, like, marks or welts up there from where they hit her with a stick. Heather says she tried to get Margaret Ann to talk to others about what was happening, but Margaret Ann was too scared. Coach Erickson had begun coaching tennis at the high school that year. She remembers the former coach giving her a heads up that Gabriel, who served as Margaret Ann's tennis coach outside of school, was no longer allowed to attend Margaret Ann's tennis matches. It was not a healthy situation if she did not win a match, so tempers would get a little high if that and I think before I got there it had gotten a little he had gotten testy probably with a parent or a coach or something and that's why he was he wasn't allowed to come out to matches. So coach Erickson remembers Margaret Ann as a sweet shy soft-spoken young woman who didn't talk bad about anybody. In many ways she was your typical teenager. She loved music and dancing. She worked hard and was a good tennis player talented enough that she would have probably gone on to play in college, Erickson says. But the coach says she also detected a fear in Margaret Ann and soon started seeing warning signs that something was wrong. The way Margaret Ann would often wear sweatpants to practice, despite the Texas heat. Protective of her players, Coach Erickson says she'd have chats with Margaret Ann, which only seemed to confirm the coach's growing suspicions that Margaret Ann was being abused. She would give me just enough, and then she would pull back, and it was kind of towards the end that I told her, I said, I said, Anne, I said, you're going to let me help you. The coach and others did attempt to help. In all, Child Protective Services opened three investigations into allegations of physical and sexual abuse of Margaret Ann by Gabriel. Two of the complaints had been made by Margaret Ann's relatives. The last, involving physical abuse allegations, was made by school administrators in January of 2000. Arlington police had also investigated. A maternal uncle even tried to take a secret video recording of Margaret Ann talking about Gabriel's abuse, but Margaret Ann was elusive in her answers. Some family members had told police that Nanette was subservient to her husband and considered his abuse toward Margaret Ann as accepted disciplinary measures. But when interviewed by investigators, Margaret Ann would always deny the allegations, ultimately leading to the cases going nowhere. She told an Arlington officer that the busted lip she had received from Gabriel had been an accident. She said she and Gabriel had been discussing household chores during a car ride when she cussed. Gabriel, in turn, raised his hand to point at her and tell her not to use such language when he accidentally struck her in her mouth. She tells the officer Gabriel had been investigated by CPS before because of bruising she had on her body. She insists those bruises came from playing sports. 
Friends believe Margaret Ann was afraid to tell the truth to authorities, fearing what her father would do. Her parents, they say, kept a close eye on Margaret Ann, even recording her phone calls. We, we had a class together, and I said, hey, I remember say, hey, um, if I call you for this assignment, is that okay? She says, yeah, let's just talk about that only because they record my phone calls. I'm like, okay. Things were so bad that Margaret Ann had confided to some that she intended to leave home as soon as she turned 17. Maybe that's why it didn't come as a surprise to some when on October 12, 2001, Gabriel Quatley called the Arlington Police Department and reported his daughter as a runaway. So I recently sat down to talk with retired Arlington Police Sergeant Mark Simpson to go over Margaret Ann's case. Now, Simpson worked just shy of 32 years for the Arlington Police Department before retiring in 2007. And Margaret Ann's case is one that still haunts him today. So on the day of Gabriel's phone call to police, an officer is dispatched to the Quatley home in the 7,000 block of Port Phillip Drive, located in southeast Arlington, and meets with Gabriel. Gabriel says his daughter had actually left the morning before, on October 11th, with her boyfriend, Alex Ramos, a bricklayer she'd met while he was doing work in the neighborhood. The report says that uh, in the morning of the 11th, he had been sleeping on the couch in the living room for the simple fact that he was afraid that Anne was going to run off during the night and he would be downstairs um, in the living room to intercept her if she tried to get out the front door. So Gabriel tells the officer that on this particular morning, Margaret Ann wakes him up so he can get ready for work and take her to school. He says he goes upstairs, gets showered, and then he gets this feeling that something's wrong. So he goes charging down the stairs and he looks out the window and Ann is outside with a boy next to um, Ford Crown Victoria, black I think the color was, and that Ann waved at him and then got in a car and drove off with this guy. And uh, Gabriel said that she laid down on the floor and cried a little bit. Um, and then shortly thereafter, Anne came back. Only now she was dressed completely differently. Gabriel tells the officer Margaret Ann was now wearing a mini skirt and black go-go boots and a shirt that showed her midriff, an outfit that he tells the officer he would have never allowed her to wear. He says that both Margaret Ann and Alex Ramos enter the house. Margaret Ann tells him not to call the police, and then her and Alex go upstairs. A few minutes later, they come back down, and Margaret Ann informs Gabriel that she's been having sex with Alex and that the two are headed to Vegas or Mexico to be together. He says Alex even kisses and fondles Margaret Ann's breast right in front of him. You get two or three versions of the story over time. This is the first version I'm telling you. After the two leave, Gabriel says he becomes emotionally upset again. He eventually got into his car drives up Highway 360 to Abrams Street, searching for Margaret Ann, but doesn't find her and comes back home. At some point, he says he calls a colleague at Chase Bank to explain what's happened. But interestingly, Gabriel doesn't call Nanette. He tells police he was fearful that if he called his wife at her Dallas job, she'd rush home in the pouring rain and get into a crash. So instead, that afternoon, Gabriel goes to Sam Houston High School where Nanette was to pick up Margaret Ann from school and breaks the news to her there. Gabriel tells the officer that he didn't report Margaret Ann's disappearance until the next day to police because she'd done this before and he was hoping she'd return. 
Now, Margaret Ann is 16 at this time. In fact, she's about two weeks away from turning 17. And at age 17 in the state of Texas, you can petition to become legally emancipated from your parents. So the officer writes up what is a pretty routine runaway report. Gabriel did not indicate to him that Ann's disappearance was anything but voluntary. According to him, she got in the car and they left. Police did meet with Loanne's friends and her tennis coach to try to ascertain where Margaret Ann may have gone. Coach Erickson remembers being called into a meeting with the principal and Gabriel. Nanette, she noted, was not present. We just talked about where we thought she could be, did we know anything, um, stuff like that. Loanne says she and some of Margaret Ann's other friends were also called into a meeting with a detective and Margaret Ann's parents. She, for one, didn't buy that Margaret Ann had run away. She says she had just talked to Margaret Ann by phone the night before Margaret Ann's disappearance to discuss what they were going to bring for a classroom party the next day. They had ended the conversation with See You Tomorrow. Heather had had a similar conversation with Margaret Ann that night, too. So both thought it was odd when Margaret Ann was suddenly a no-show for the party. And then the next day was when the detective came to the school and we were called in and like, uh-oh. Immediately in my head was her stepdad did something to her. Loanne says she didn't share her suspicions with police that day. I mean, after all, Gabriel's sitting in the same room. Now, under such circumstances, Margaret Ann's name would have been entered into the NCIC, or National Crime Information Center, to alert any officers that might come across her of her runaway status. But little else was done. That report was, was forwarded to a detective uh, in a juvenile division. Uh, the reality of it was that um, when I went back and looked at what had been done, he basically wrote a one-line investigative narrative that there was no foul play suspected. And this is, I'm paraphrasing, no foul play suspected. She was in a week of being 17. That's it. That's all that was done. So a few months pass, and Margaret Ann doesn't come home. In January of 2002, three months after Margaret Ann reportedly ran away, Gabriel writes a letter to the detective assigned to Margaret Ann's runaway report. And in this letter, he claims he's received a call from Margaret Ann, in which she said she's been kidnapped and is asking for help. He writes that Alex Ramos is definitely behind the kidnapping though he now says it wasn't actually Alex who came to the house on that October 11th morning when Margaret Ann left. He's now claiming the person who left Margaret Ann that morning was only impersonating Alex. He says his daughter was taken to Mexico, where she's now being held against her will and being moved from place to place. He even gives the detective a name of a woman in Grand Prairie, who he says is in contact with Alex and knew of his plan to kidnap Margaret Ann and take her to Mexico. Two months later, in March 2002, Gabriel sends another letter, this time to the juvenile unit's new supervisor, Sergeant Craig Leondike. Now, basically, in this letter, Gabriel criticizes the efforts being made by the detective assigned to the case. The investigator isn't doing enough to find Alex Ramos, he complains. He wants a new detective to be assigned to the case. So Sergeant Leondike gets in contact with Gabriel Kowali, and the two meet in person on March 14, 2002. Gabriel brings with him to this meeting what he believes is proof of Margaret Ann's kidnapping, an email he says came from Margaret Ann herself. Gabriel says he received this email on March 11, 2002, exactly five months after Margaret Ann's disappearance, 
from the email address anhelpme at yahoo.com. In the subject line was written, my last picture. And this email that he had received from Margaret on March the 11th indicated from Margaret or Anne that she was in Guadalajara, Mexico, and that she was being held against her will, forced into prostitution, and was requesting that, that Gabriel come and save her. So obviously, this is a big turn of events. And right away, something doesn't seem right. There's a red flag from the get-go. Uh, this new sergeant looks at it, and um, everything that has gone on, you know, going all the way back to October, and now he's got this. When you hear the, the whole story, um, it sounds like this little girl's in trouble. So Leon Dyke takes the email to his supervisor, Lieutenant John Rucker, and explains the whole story to him. They then go upstairs to see Simpson, then the supervisor of Arlington's homicide unit. The unit was also responsible for investigating missing person cases involving victims 17 or older. By this time, Margaret Ann would have been 17. They came up to me on a Friday, I think it was on March the 15th, and explained to me, laid out the whole story. And Lieutenant Rucker asked me, I said, what do you think? I told him, I said, based on what you're telling me, I think this little girl's dead. By Monday, the case officially belonged to the homicide unit. Simpson assigned Detective Tommy Lenore to lead the investigation. He just had uh, so many chapters of suspicion that it, it definitely warranted our review. And, uh, you know, I went into it uh, with great concerns to begin with as to whether or not her disappearance was voluntary. Though a sergeant over the juvenile unit, Leon Dyke was granted permission to assist Lenore. So if you watch true crime shows and documentaries, you know that the first 48 hours are critical in finding out what happened to a missing or kidnapped child. But here, the homicide unit is starting their investigation five months after Margaret Ann disappeared. Here you have a girl that went missing in October. Fast forward to March, and you guys are now starting the investigation. So how much of how much of a challenge is that? It can be a huge challenge because you just think about the sheer amount of time that's passed between October and March. And now you, and you've got a changing story from what uh, Gabriel initially reported to what he's telling us now. Plus, now you've got these emails that, that are coming reportedly out of Guadalajara, Mexico. And Gabriel, it turns out, wasn't the only one getting these emails. Margaret Ann's maternal uncle, the one who had suspicions that Gabriel had been abusing the teen, had also received one from Margaret Ann on March 11th. The uncle's email contained threats against the uncle, as well as derogatory remarks aimed at Margaret Ann's brother and grandmother. The uncle told police he suspected Gabriel was really behind the email, telling police that the language and tone of the email was uncharacteristic of Margaret Ann and her relationship with the family members. The uncle's email also included a photograph. Apparently, Gabriel had received the same email, but hadn't mentioned or provided this photograph to police. Now, in this photo, Margaret Ann is standing with her arm on her hip, posing with another teen girl in front of what looks like some kind of monument. When we looked at the photograph, the email photograph, you know, Deanna, I'm no expert at this, but even I could see that this thing had been photoshopped. 
badly. It turns out, even Coach Erickson and some of Margaret Ann's friends, including Loann, had been getting these emails too. Erickson said she remembers how that first email filled her with both relief that Margaret Ann was alive, but then quickly dread upon reading about Margaret Ann's current fate. Coach, I'm in trouble. I'm, you know, been sold to the the Mexican mafia drug, you know, this, and, and they've got me moving around. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And she said she was being drugged and moving from house to house. And, um, and then, of course, I respond, I will come and get you. From South Texas herself, Erickson said she'd grown up hearing of such things happening in Madame Morris and, as such, didn't think it was too far-fetched. She recalls Gabriel later reached out to her and that she told him about the email she'd received from Margaret Ann and had offered to help in any way she could. I'm just going off of pure emotion for her. And so I think I received, like, at least three or four emails throughout this time period. And then, and then meeting up with her dad at the school in the parking lot to, to, to you know, to discuss what I could do. You know, and he was telling me he was, him and his friends were going to go down there with guns and mortgage everything and, and stuff like that to go down and save her. Loann, Margaret Ann's friend, received her first email on January 7th, 2002. Do you remember me? Hope you all think about me. I did something so stupid and I want to get out. Please write me. Tell me how is everybody. Tell my friends to write me. Love, Margaret, it read. Over the span of one month, Loanne would receive another 30 or so emails from Margaret Ann. Emails that gave graphic details about her life of forced prostitution in Mexico, but were also riddled with strange requests, including that Loanne sent her dirty jokes. For reasons she can't really explain, Loanne has kept these emails, after all these years and through numerous moves, and shared copies with me. Now, the emails are at times just downright weird. One minute, Margaret Ann is writing about being forced into unprotected sex, and the next she's asking Loanne to inquire about whether guys had liked it when she once wore shiny blue boots to school. Loanne says it doesn't take long for her to start to get a little suspicious about whether these emails are really from her friend. Why she kept pushing about the blue boots that she wore. That was weird. Right, it's like, why... You are kidnapped, you are held somewhere, you are got internet access once in a while. Why do you care so much what people thought about you wearing those blue boots? But Loanne is just a teenager with no real proof that the emails are not from Margaret Ann. So she keeps writing back. Now in these emails, Margaret Ann, who had previously told Loanne only terrible things about Gabriel, has done a complete 180 on that topic. She writes that she lied to Loanne and others when she described her father as a monster. How Gabriel was actually this great man who only wanted what was best for her and was now trying to rescue her. And how she's been brainwashed to think otherwise by her brother and mother's family. In one of the most bizarre emails, sent on January 25, 2002, Margaret is going off on how her mother's family hated Gabriel and never even gave him a chance. My dad has been like a cat that you always kick when something goes wrong. Ever since they met him, they hated him. He was younger than my mom, good-looking, strong, and he has an awesome body. 
Imagine 220 pounds of muscle with a 32-inch waist, nice butt, hairy chest, and shoulders that look like coconuts. Now imagine my aunt's husband or any of my uncles, the email reads. She talks about while her brother had hated Gabriel, she had loved him since she was six years old. After all, she points out, what six-year-old girl wouldn't like a, quote, stud as a dad? He was so nice to me, and I would just watch him sleep and see all those muscles that I did not know existed. He was a national champion in weightlifting in 1990, not bodybuilding like most people think, but he had an awesome body, the email states. Margaret Ann encourages Loanne to reach out to Gabriel, which Loanne does, and soon Loanne is getting regular emails from Gabriel, too, concerning his plans to rescue Margaret Ann. He wants to meet with Loanne in person to share some information with her, but she manages to avoid any such meetings. Now, the email exchange between Loanne and Margaret Ann eventually turns to talk that the teen was injured during sex, wasn't healing, and was now undergoing tests. She talks excitedly about how her father was planning a rescue mission that February, but then laments in another email that she's just learned she has AIDS. The last email Loanne receives, dated February 16, 2002, is not from Margaret Ann. My name is of no importance, it begins. I am Margaret's friend, and she asked me to send an email to you so that you will know what happened to her. The email goes on to say that Margaret is dying, if not already dead, from HIV that her captors learned about Gabriel's rescue plan, moved Margaret Ann and set a trap for Gabriel, that Margaret Ann believes her father is dead, but that Gabriel actually survived, managing to save some of the other women. I owe my life to Margaret and her dad. You need to know that she is a hero, and although she lived a life of lies, she truly loves you. Her advice is to be careful and do not have sex with everyone just for fun. This mistake is deadly. Teens are not Superman, and they do get deadly diseases also. The email ends with a friend telling Loanne she will never hear from her again. I have to rebuild my life, and thanks to Margaret and her dad, all is well for us, but not for her. HIV is killing her, and the worst thing about it is that she will never know that her dad is alive. That is a very painful punishment for her. She truly loves him. Now, Loanne discusses these emails that she's getting among her friends she didn't at least initially share them with police. But while police don't know about the emails being sent to Margaret Ann's friends and her coach at that time, they did have the emails she'd sent to Gabriel and her uncle. And like the emails that were sent to Loanne, these two seem to have a similar theme, Simpson says. She talks about how devoted she is to her her stepfather. Um, She puts in these emails that, that she lied to her friends and family about any reports of Gabriel physically or sexually abusing her, um, that she affirms repeatedly that Gabriel was correct and right and that she was wrong in her desire to have a date with a boy. And then she puts in these emails a warning to all the recipients, Gabriel, her uncle, and a couple of other little buddies, that they should trust only what Gabriel tells her, and that he's the only one that cares about her, and he's the only one that's trying to rescue her, and anything she hears from anybody else that's contrary to that is a lie. Now, among the first thing the investigators do is send these emails to the police department's economic crimes unit to trace their origin. 
they looked at the, at those emails and they were able to determine that those emails did not originate in Guadalajara, Mexico. Those emails originated from Chase Bank, less than a mile from the Oriental Police Department. That same Chase Bank branch, it turns out, is where Gabriel works as the director of security. So the next day, on March 21st, 2002, police have Gabriel come in to provide a written statement about his daughter's disappearance. He's not under arrest, he can leave at any time, he's advised of his rights, but agrees to waive them and speak with investigators. Gabriel goes over what happened the morning of October 11th, 2001, again pointing the blame of his daughter's kidnapping on Alex Ramos. He talks about making the police report the next day and how since that time, he's received three emails from Margaret Ann, the first on December 12th, 2001, and the last on March 11th, 2002. He says the last one did have a photo attached, but neither he nor his wife could open it. He didn't realize at this point the police already knew he was the one sending those emails. So you gotta ask, why would Gabriel send those emails pretending to be Margaret Ann? I mean, why continue to draw that kind of attention back onto her disappearance? Now, Lenore thinks it's because some family and friends were starting to voice their disbelief that Margaret Ann simply ran away. I believe they were generated to try to convince all of those who were focusing their suspicion on him that, hey, she's alive, she's well, she is not here, we, we can't locate her, we can't interview her because she's not here, but she's alive and well. And I think what speaks volumes to me about those emails was the fact that she is chastising everyone about any suspicion towards him. I mean, that if this weren't such a, a tragic situation, such a tragic case, uh, that's almost comical because it, it, it is so ridiculous. Simpson agrees the emails were meant to get pressure off of Gabriel and put the onus back on the police department. I think that he thought that he could beat us, that he was smarter than we were. Uh, and that was my belief throughout the entire investigation. He always thought we were, he was smarter than we were. Uh, and personally, I think that arrogance led to part of the downfall. So on the same day that Gabriel gives a written statement, Arlington police end up running two search warrants. First, they go to the Chase Bank at 500 East Border Street, where Gabriel works. They go after business hours so as not to disturb the bank's employees and customers. So when we searched Gabriel's workstation, uh, one of the things we found was a floppy disk. And on that floppy disk, um, we found a composite photograph from the email reportedly sent by Ann, which she titled my last picture. And what it was, was that photoshopped photograph. Um, and I think that there were also two or three other iterations of it where they were, you know, always trying to get it right, all that kind of stuff. The other thing that we got out of there, out of the desk, was we got an envelope. And in that envelope, um, there were two hairs, a small amount of dried soil, a jewel, some jewelry, um, one of which was a, a, a drop for a pendant that we later found out was a gift that had been given to Anne by one of her best friends, another girl there at Sam Houston High School. 
and we were told later on that Anne cherished that pendant and that drop, and she went nowhere without it. After searching Gabriel's workstation, police head to the Quatley home on Port Phillip Drive. Now, Simpson says when you're looking through the house, obviously you're looking for what's named in the search warrant, computers, hard drives, recordings, but you're also taking in the overall appearance of the house. We showed up unannounced, so it wasn't like anybody had a chance to clean things up or anything, but the house was well appointed. Um, it was clean. It was ordered. Uh, it was uh, nicely furnished. You know, every, everything that you would expect in a nice home. So finding any evidence that Margaret Ann had been inside the house obviously does nothing for investigators. I mean, she lived there. Of course, there will be her possessions and her prints throughout the house. What they're trying to find is some kind of evidence of a crime. I can say with certainty that, that as we were looking through that, we found nothing to indicate that there had been some kind of criminal act there that we could identify that would link Ann to a crime scene. They do, however, find the original photograph of Margaret Ann that had been used to create the Photoshop picture sent in the emails. When the economics crime later searches Gabriel's work and home computers, they even find various iterations of that Photoshop picture that had been attached to one of the emails. Simpson says it looked as if Gabriel was trying to get the shading on the doctor photo just right. On Gabriel's work computer, police find five email addresses had been regularly accessed, including anhelpme at yahoo.com, and a number of emails that had been generated and sent out purporting to be from Margaret Ann. Coach Erickson remembers detectives calling and asking to meet with her and sharing with her that the emails she thought she'd been receiving from Margaret Ann had actually been sent from Gabriel's work computer. I was in shock. Kind of makes my stomach hurt is what it was. Then to know that I had been conversating with him and not her. Loann was also contacted and shared her emails with police. She says she recently read back through them all and feels like such an idiot for believing any of them were real in the first place. Reading it now, it's just like, God, it's, 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 it's being catfished. I'm pretty sure what he did was just send out emails to anybody on her contact list and just kept the conversation going with whoever responded. Now, while searching Gabriel's work computer, Simpson says something pops up during the investigation. Something criminal, but unrelated to Margaret Ann's disappearance. Our people were looking at the computer and saw some things on there that didn't look right and contacted Chase Bank and they did some of their own searching come to find out. Uh, Gabriel was stealing money out of one of the Chase Bank's clients' account. So the FBI begins working the theft case. Now, we're at a point in the investigation where authorities could have just easily arrested Gabriel. I mean, they've got evidence Gabriel had been embezzling, that he'd been sending out fake emails. But Simpson says investigators are in no rush. And in fact, they asked the FBI to hold off making any arrest. From within a week, um, when we took over the investigation, we had him dead bang on the seven tamper charge. And it's not that I wasn't interested in it, but that wasn't what I wanted. I believe that something really bad has happened to this little girl, and I wanted her. And all this other stuff could come in later, but I wanted her. And that was part of the reason why we were holding off on making the arrest, because Gabriel was still talking to us, 
even though you know the statements weren't making a lot of sense, they still talking to us. I figured as long as we're talking, we got a shot. And boy, is Gabriel still talking. On March 27, 2002, almost a week after police conducted their searches, Gabriel decides he wants to talk to police again. He contacts investigators and invites them to his home. The reason he wanted to meet with Detective Lenore, Lenore Sergeant Leondike, was he wanted to, to be able to explain some of um, the items that were seized from his home. As they, as they related to the investigation. So Detective Lenore and Sergeant Leondike meet with Gabriel and Annette at their house, where Gabriel gives a second statement. He starts off the meeting by admitting to the investigators that he had previously lied to them and withheld some evidence. He tells investigators that in January 2002, approximately three months after Margaret Ann's disappearance, two strangers who claimed to know the whereabouts of Margaret Ann put a series of floppy disks on the windshield of his car. He claimed he couldn't download what was on the disc, so he sends them to a friend in Mexico. He said that friend manages to download photographs from these discs and emails them back to Gabriel at his work. He said he looked at the photographs uh, that were downloaded on his computer and transferred a copy to a diskette, and he did all this work, and then transferred it to his home. That's how he wound up with copies of these diskettes at his residence. Um, that's his explanation to it. Gabriel goes on to tell the detectives that this friend of his in Mexico had also found two men in Guadalajara who could take Gabriel to his daughter if he would come down there. Gabriel says he drove to Mexico on February 10, 2002, where he met with these two men. He says the men then gave him the jewelry that investigators had found in his desk at work as proof that they had Margaret Ann. And these guys then told Gabriel, according to Gabriel, that for a ransom of $300 U.S., they would take him to Ann the following day. Well, the following day, the, the men did not show up, uh, and Gabriel became frightened and drove back to Arlington. Now, what Gabriel won't tell the investigators is the name of this friend in Mexico, who he'd supposedly sent these discs to, and who got him in touch with these two men in Guadalajara. He says he hadn't seen or heard from those two men again. He expresses anger that investigators still hadn't pursued Alex Ramos the man he insists kidnapped his daughter and had since sold to the Mexican Mafia for prostitution. So what was your your reaction and investigator's reaction to this to this new story that he's just given? Did you buy it? No. Um, you know, here's a, but, but here's the deal. Even, even though you look at it uh, and you, you listen to what he's saying, and it defies all sense of logic. I mean, that, that he's willing to drive all the way to Mexico and that he can get his daughter back for $300. Uh, and these guys just sh don't show up, so he turns around and comes home. That doesn't make a difference worth of sense. Uh, but this is the story you're given. So as part of the investigative process, one way or another, you've either got to impeach or corroborate what you've been told. But to answer your question specifically, no. Well, you can throw the bullshit flag at that one. But you've got to impeach or cooperate it because sometimes you're told wild stories and they do turn out to be true. So the very next week, on April 2nd, 2002, Gabriel meets again with the Arlington investigators to provide a third statement. This one is both audio and video recorded. I was able to obtain a copy of that video through an open records request, and I gotta tell you, it's pretty overwhelming. About two hours in length, Gabriel goes over everything, 
starting from the day leading up to Margaret Ann leaving the house. And at times he's just kind of rambling. You'll hear excerpts from that interview here and can watch parts of it at www.startelegram.com backslash out of the cold. So Gabriel says he'd gone to the school on October 10th, 2001 to pick up Margaret Ann because Nanette was running late. And then she became extremely rebellious. She started saying that she didn't want to play tennis anymore, that she wanted to, um, to have a social life, she wanted to date, that uh, she just didn't want to be in the house anymore because she wanted total freedom. So I said, what do you mean by total freedom? I said, well, I just want to be free. She never gave us any indication as to where she wanted to go or anything like that. Gabriel tells the detective after Nanette joins them, the family goes out to eat and then returns home. There, he says, Margaret Ann is continuing with her talk of planning to leave home. She was very, very aggressive. We looked at her and it was like a face that we had never seen before. Completely different, you know. It's just like she had aged two or three years in a two or three week period. It's like it wasn't Anne who was talking. It's like, who's that girl? He then recounts how she left the next morning, later returning with Alex Ramos and dressed in what he described as defiant clothing. How she went upstairs to get some stuff, then came down where Alex kissed and grabbed her breast in front of him before they left. But according to police, Gabriel is once again changing parts of his story. This time, he says that within minutes of Margaret Ann leaving with Alex, he gets a phone call from an unknown person saying he can help lead him to Margaret Ann's whereabouts if he brings a hundred dollars to the gas station at Texas 360 in Abram Street. These people handed me a copy of the, la- I mean, the original last page of her diary that she had been writing, and they said, you know, give me money, and I gave them money. They took off. I could never get a hold of them, could never reach them. So I knew they started playing games with me. Now, Gabriel claims to Lenore he told this to the original officer who had responded to his house on October 11, 2001, the day he reported Margaret Ann's disappearance to police. He says the officer told him there wasn't much they could do with that since Gabriel didn't get a license plate number, but that the officer told him to be careful. Now, clearly, that's not what the original police report stated. I mean, this is the first time Detective Lenore is hearing anything about a possible ransom. Later, investigators would find Officer Mike Scarbeck, the officer that had initially taken the runaway report, and ask him about what he'd been told that October 12, 2001 day by Gabriel. As it happens, Officer Scarbeck still has his handwritten notes from his interview with Gabriel that day, which showed that Gabriel had expressed no concerns for Margaret Ann's welfare. He made no mention of Margaret being the victim of a kidnapping, made no mention of a phone call, ransom, or having met with anyone associated with her leaving on October the 11th. Gabriel says that Margaret was a runaway and nothing more. In fact, Simpson says the only emotional distress the officer remembered seeing in Gabriel during that meeting was when he grew angry while talking about Alex Ramos kissing and fondling Margaret Ann in front of him inside the home. Now, also in this April 2nd, 2002 interview, Gabriel introduces some new underworld characters into the case. He says days after Margaret Ann's disappearance, a man called him offering to help him find his daughter. And this person said, you know, I know what you're going through. It is my job to know. My name is Max, okay? I said, I can help you find your daughter, but I I can tell you you're gonna have a lot of problems because you're dealing with very bad people. 
He says the man told him, however, the cost would be sufficient and to start saving his money. Gabriel said, as a few weeks passed with no sign of Margaret Ann, he eventually began to consider hiring a private investigator. He says Max ended up calling him again, and he soon decides to work with him. The cost, he said he was told, would be $30,000. So Gabriel says he applies for a loan. He tells Detective Lenore that Max actually followed him one day as he left work. He says the man drove a red truck with lights on top that he activated to get Gabriel to pull over. He said, you know, and I remember that very well, you know what we exist? I said, because the police sometimes is unable to go further. You know, I work undercover. You don't know me. My name obviously is not Max. I have an associate, Mr. Lee. That's how I call him. His name is Norby. I will know everything about you. You will not know anything about me. So Gabriel says this Mr. Max tells him when Gabriel wants to communicate, he just needs to slightly change the message on his work voicemail and Mr. Max will be in touch. So once the loan was approved, Mr. Max gets in contact with him again. He said, okay, this is what we're going to do. He said, I have already been doing some investigation on, you know, she's in Mexico. You know, she said, you will not believe this, but she's been sold to slavery, sex slavery. So Gabriel says he gives Max $6,000 and Max starts doing his thing. He says when Margaret Ann starts sending emails through Ann Help Me, he tries to track where their emails were coming from. He says with a friend's help, he's able to determine the emails were being routed through servers in California and Mexico. Gabriel says Max determines that Margaret Ann has been sending messages to a friend and Margaret Ann's high school tennis coach. So we were a little, a little suspicious, you know, why is she going to have access to an email? Max said, okay, this is, what's, this is the plan. I'm going to do what he calls red herring, which is a term I never heard before. And what we're going to do, we're going to do five things. We're going to ensure that that's Anne. We're going to protect Anne. We're going to protect the recipients of the email. At the same time, we're going to track her down and we're going to somehow communicate with her. And, you know, that's my territory. You know, you don't ask questions, you just do as I say. So then Gabriel starts telling the detective how Mr. Max starts coming to his house every night, sometimes bringing his associate, Mr. Lee, with him. He says they do this for like two months, coming to his house and doing a lot of stuff on his computer. They'd also bring a wireless laptop with him. He said he'd hear a lot of typing, but he didn't know what they were doing. He says he was just ordered to follow the men's instructions when they asked him to do something. Maybe it was calling a friend in Mexico, Maybe it was cutting and pasting a portion of an email, translating an email, sending an email, or saving one as a draft. He said the men said such actions were needed to create the red hearing, to make sure they were really dealing with Margaret Ann and protecting everyone involved. You don't have to worry about it. You just do what I tell you to do. And I said, ah, okay. So that was basically, you know, they took charge. They would call me sometimes. They said, I work. I want you to go ahead and open this email, which is a safe draft. He'd say, don't read it. Don't worry about it. Gabriel says much of what he did at work involved the Ann Help Me email account, but that most of the work Mr. Max and Mr. Lee were doing at night was from his home. I asked, you know, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, we want to cause distraction. We don't want anybody to know because although somebody here is allowing them to communicate with us, maybe somebody over here shouldn't know that. So once again, police are suspicious. I mean, Gabriel's long-winded, convoluted account regarding this Mr. Max and Mr. Lee seemed to be an attempt to explain away anything investigators might find on his home and work computer. Lenore says Gabriel's ever-changing stories 
were clearly signs of deception and an attempt to mislead police and redirect suspicions away from Gabriel. And these stories were very unreasonable. Um, none of them were consistent with the evidence that we knew, other than the fact that regardless of what his story was, her disappearance, her leaving that home was in his presence. That never changed. In this interview, Gabriel also discusses his relationship with Margaret Ann. He talks about how good it was in the past, how they were always together. He woke her up, made her breakfast, took her to school. They'd sometimes have lunch together, played tennis with her every day, ate dinner together. Tennis, he says, kept them together. But Margaret Ann apparently wanted out, Simpson says. She told her brother that Gabriel's efforts to make her a tennis star was both physically and emotionally abusive. She wanted a typical teenage life, boyfriends, a social life. Gabriel thought or believed or wanted that wanted Anne to excel at tennis with the idea of her being able to get a scholarship and go to college. As we found out later, of course, by this point, Anne was pretty well burned out on tennis. She didn't want to play tennis. Uh, and that, that really angered Gabriel because two things. Number one, they're going to they're build your shot. At a, at a scholarship, and number two is that she was not acquiescing to his demands. Gabriel tells police he and his daughter had a deal. As long as he was coaching her, no boys. He said their relationship only began to deteriorate with Margaret Ann becoming what he describes as vicious and even evil after Alex Ramos came into the picture. With everything together, and you know, Everything really started deteriorating around February or March of last year that I noticed that that was not the same man. It's like, and something is happening to you since she was seeing this guy. And then, you know, open the other family started helping her and, you know, they started brainwashing her. It's like, you know, you're 16 now. They used that word a lot. You should have a boyfriend. Just like that. And everybody at school said, go for it, girl. You can have a boyfriend, then you know. And I was right here saying, Well, we made a commitment so long as I remain your coach, you concentrate on this. And you know, no, no boys. So, obviously, if police are going to corroborate or impeach these statements being given to them by Gabriel, they've got to find this man, Alex Ramos. Now, Simpson admits in the beginning he was dubious that this Alex Ramos even existed. I didn't really believe that Alex Ramos was real, but. In the fullness of the investigation, we were able to identify who Alex Ramos really was. And Alex Ramos played a huge part in how we ultimately brought this part of the investigation to a close. So through contacts with builders and contractors, police are able to identify Alex Ramos by his full name and date of birth and learn that he's living in Grand Prairie. They meet with him. He tells investigators he had met Margaret Ann during the summer of 2001 while he worked construction on a house next door to hers. He says the two secretly started seeing each other for fear that Gabriel would find out. And he also tells police that Margaret Ann had confided in him that Gabriel had abused her from a young age and that she planned to move out upon turning 17. Alex also tells them that a phone call that he received had kind of freaked him out. He told us that he had had a conversation back in, I believe it was July, with an individual who claimed to be a friend of Anne. And this friend wanted to get together with him 
to help facilitate he and Ann getting together. Alex tells police that the caller, whom he suspects is really Gabriel, is asking him weird things. Like if he saw Margaret Ann dancing for him from the window of her house while she was wearing boots and a miniskirt. Alex tells police that wasn't like Margaret Ann to either dress or act like that. So Alex agrees to meet with this caller purporting to be Margaret Ann's friend. But in actuality, he's got no intention of doing so. In fact, he tells a friend that if this man calls back, to tell him that Alex had moved back to Mexico. At some point, the man does call back, and he's informed that Alex has gone back to Mexico. Well, the interesting thing about it was, when we ran the search warrant on March 21st at Gabriel's residence, we picked up several cassette tapes. And when we went through those cassette tapes, one of those cassette tapes was recording for the phone call that Alex Romans told us about. Only it wasn't some friend, it was Gabriel calling me. And I think Gabriel wanted to get, get to him one-on-one. Investigators think it's because Gabriel believed that Alex had returned to Mexico that he thought Alex would be an excellent candidate to blame Anne's disappearance. But in reality, Alex didn't really go to Mexico. He told police he did leave Texas, but headed to Imperial, Nebraska, where he'd been offered a job on a farm. The police put Alex's photograph in a photo lineup and they show it to Gabriel on April 19, 2002. Gabriel picked him out. Said, that's Alex Reynolds. I am 100% sure that this is the guy who was in my house and took off with my daughter. So investigators focus on finding out where Alex Ramos was when Margaret Ann went missing. And Alex is being very cooperative eager to get his name cleared. He tells investigators that not only was he in Imperial, Nebraska, when Margaret Ann went missing, that he even got arrested around that same time in Nebraska. Simpson recalls it was on some kind of misdemeanor traffic warrant. So, he can't be two places at one time. So we got a hold of Lamson's Farms, which is where he said he worked. Talked to one of their representatives who says, yes, he was working up here. Uh, under, under an alias name, uh, but he was working up here, he was working on a farm, uh, he was uh, renting one of our little uh, ranch houses, and uh, also paying for rent on our refrigerator. So we said, okay, we want his work records that says he was there. Arlington police then took it a step further and asked the sheriff's department in Ray, Colorado, located about an hour southwest of Imperial, Nebraska, to show a photo spread with a picture of Alex in it to Lanson Farms representatives, just to make sure it was really Alex Ramos who'd been working there. I mean, after all, he was using an alias name at that time. So they did, and the representative of Lanson Farm picked Alex Ramos. Says, so, you know, on October the 11th, he was here. So Arlington police take it even another step forward and contact the Imperial Nebraska Police Department and asked for officers there to send them a copy of the fingerprint card Alex would have made when he was arrested there. Meanwhile, Alex provides Arlington Police his fingerprints, and investigators have two separate fingerprint examiners compare these sets of prints. Both agreed they were a match. Gabriel is saying he's here in his house when we know that he's in Nebraska. So police have followed up on Gabriel's claim that Alex Ramos kidnapped Margaret Ann, 
and can now prove that's untrue. Just about everything this guy told us is a lie. We've got the emails that he says come out of Guadalajara, Mexico. Au contraire, they come out of 500 East Border at Chase Bank. We've got the photograph that were and is in Guadalajara with one of his little friends. And we find that the original photograph that this thing was photoshopped from, we find in his house. Uh, and we find that the, uh, um, we find the diskette in his workstation where he's been fooling with this thing, photoshopping different iterations of it. So all this stuff is a lie. Meanwhile, there's still no sign of Margaret Ann. Police check morgues for unidentified remains. They take a DNA sample from Margaret Ann's mother and Annette, and they even enter Margaret Ann's fingerprints into national databases. Simpson said police conducted some searches, but the problem was there was no evidence pointing them to a specific place to search. The Kowatli House was located roughly five minutes from Joe Pool Lake, and there was countless rutted trails and roads leading to undeveloped land. There were hundred different places, thousand different places that she could have been. So, you know, you, you kind of try and hit the high points, but with totally non-specific uh, idea where to look in a jam. My idea was that somehow Margaret had come to foul play and was dead. But there's also a lot of construction going on in the area, and I thought that she might be found by a construction crew, you know, cutting roads and residential lots or something like that. But as it turned out, none of that occurred. I mean, she just dropped off the face of the earth. Coming up on the next Out of the Cold, with no sign of Margaret Ann Kowatli, Arlington police arrest the girl's adopted father, Gabriel Kowatli, in connection with a kidnapping, tampering with evidence, and theft. But the conclusion of the case would be anything but joyous. This Out of the Cold episode was produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Tom Johannenmeyer, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.